everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of the North County Beat. I'm your host, Kelly Kyle. Today's episode goes along with the series on human trafficking that we just released. Parts one and two covered so much. So if you haven't listened yet, make sure you do. I wanted to first let you know that today's episode of the North County Beat is sponsored by Casa di Bandini at the Forum in Carlsbad. They're currently open for takeout, so you can get all of the fresh, authentic flavors that you love right at home, plus delicious margaritas to go. The Coast News and Casa di Bandini are teaming up to give away $50 gift cards for some great food and drink. Just follow the Coast News Group on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and then like, share, and tag a friend or dozens of friends as soon as you see the Casa di Bandini giveaway post in your feed. Now let's get to it. For the reporting on human trafficking, I spoke with Dr. Amy Carpenter, a University of San Diego associate professor with the Croc School of Peace Studies. She co-authored a report in 2016 called The Nature and Extent of Gang Involvement in Sex Trafficking in San Diego County. To this day, it is the most comprehensive report that exists on sex trafficking in this area, and the data is cited regularly by the DA's office and the San Diego Human Trafficking Task Force. To create this research report, Dr. Amy Carpenter and her colleagues interviewed hundreds of local traffickers to put some data behind the underground sex economy. What they found was fascinating, so I wanted to leave you with my Zoom conversation with Dr. Amy Carpenter about her study. There are a few edits for time and clarity, and just keep in mind, this interview contains explicit language and references of sexual violence. Is this the only report on this type of data for this region or were there others? No, this is the only one. And that's what makes it special. Um, In the years since the the study, uh, I've had some time to kind of reflect on what we did here. And it's a a one-of-a-kind methodology um, that now some people are adopting. I know Denver has just... Um, essentially use the same methodology to look at their trafficking problem. Uh, So no, yeah, this was the first and only study so far in our region. And can I get you to briefly describe your background for me as a a professor and your involvement in this type of work, in this research work? It's a funny story, actually. I did not know much about human trafficking at all. You know, I used to mention it briefly in one of my classes as a human security threat. I'm a professor of conflict resolution. I had done a small study on gangs in San Diego. I wanted to understand how many there were, what they were doing. And that study turned up um, some, we we used some maps of gang territories overlaid the city to look at the different types of crimes that were being committed. And we found the human trafficking crimes were being committed in a certain area of the city. So because I did that little study, when San Diego DA's office, police department, and some victim service providers decided to get together and see how they could coordinate better, they asked me to join their conversation, but not because I knew anything about human trafficking, because I was a good facilitator of conversations, and they felt very differently about things. Um, For example, the law enforcement folks feel that human trafficking is a crime and it should be addressed by arresting and prosecuting people. Victim service providers back, this was like almost eight years ago now, they were saying, look, you guys end up arresting the the prostitute, the victim more often than you end up arresting the pimp. So actually y'all are making things worse. 
Um, and then there were schools at the table saying, uh, we have middle schoolers and high schoolers who are getting involved in this. And, you know, how does a law enforcement approach help and, and victim services? You all are not in the schools. So I came in really as someone to help resolve conflict and, and help get folks on the same page. And we spent a couple of years doing that. And once we had created the San Diego Advisory Council for Human and Sex Trafficking, which is what came out of all those conversations, then I was able to ask, all right, what can a researcher provide uh, for you all? And Summer Stefan had just been elected the DA and she said, we need numbers. We need to know how big the problem actually is. And so, because I was very devoted to the success of this group, um, but not because I'd ever done any research on human trafficking, we put in for this grant at the NIJ and we got it. And so I remember the day we heard that we had gotten it, we were all very giddy and very happy. And I just remember thinking, all right, now we have to do what we said we're gonna do <laughs> because it was a very ambitious project. Yeah. yeah, and so this was around like 2015, 2016? Yeah, we got the grant in 2013. Oh. Yeah, we started work in 2014. Right. Yeah. Cause it was, I mean, it's an extensive report, so it makes sense that it took a couple of years to really do all these interviews. We had four sources of data that it took a little while to put together. We did 159 interviews with traffickers and gang involved individuals in prisons and a little bit in the community. We analyzed victim service providers intake records. We did focus groups in uh, our schools, and we also looked at police and sheriff arrest data to try to get a sense of how big the problem was. I definitely want to ask you about your conversations with traffickers and learning more about that piece of things. Um, but first, I just want you as the researcher here to just tell me what were some of the most uh, significant takeaways from this report in in your mind? Like the size of the sex economy here was very surprising to me. The majority of traffickers are white. That is a um, key finding in this study that has been underemphasized in media coverage of it. This is a really important finding. Um, it's, it's not the stereotype of the black pimp. Most tra traffickers are white and a good third of them are Hispanic. Um, the amount of money <laughs> that the annual estimated uh, earnings of a trafficker is around 600, sorry, yeah, about $610,000, which is just insane. But when you look at, when you break it down, it's not that insane. Um, the average trafficker has between four, well, the, the guys, the traffickers themselves said, uh, we have on average four girls. The women we interviewed said they have on average eight girls. Wow. But each girl has a quota of $1,200 a day average that they are supposed to bring in. So if you think about it, that's over $6,000 a day every day of the week that is going to the trafficker. Um, so it's obviously a very lucrative business. You mentioned women uh, are traffickers as well. I think that might be another uh, misconception that people might have. It kind of goes against the media portrayal. And when I say media, I probably yeah. refer to like movies and, and TV and stuff. But. Absolutely. And there are in San Diego, a lot of underground 
casinos and brothels that are run by um, Filipino and and Chinese families that are operated by women. Women are the brothel keepers. Mm -hmm. um, and we learned this from interviews with members of the Asian Crips, which is a really, really big organization, I would say more than a gang. Um, it has headquarters in Phoenix and um, and Los Angeles, they fly in planefuls of people, like they smuggle people into the United States and then into these underground casinos, uh, which are also brothels. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, and all of the illicit massage parlors um, in San Diego, the majority of them will have a madam in charge. So that's a kind of trafficking we don't think about a lot, but even in the gang world, um, yeah, there are, you know, there. Once you're in it, it's really easy to become a part of it. Have you heard, have you heard the term bottom bitch before? Yeah. Okay. So you know what it means. Mm -hmm. Okay. So bottom bitches would very often become responsible for recruiting other women into the pimps, quote unquote, stable. And that's where it becomes interesting. Like, how do you draw the line between victim and victimizer? When it comes to communities that are most affected, um, can you just reiterate who the victims of this are and then the demographic information of who the traffickers are? And you, like I said, you've already spoke to that a little bit, but just Absolutely. what are we seeing? So in San Diego, we found that the average age of entry into sex trafficking was 15 to 16 years old, which is older than a statistic that is commonly reported, which is 12 years old. 80% of the victims are domestically trafficked. Only 20% were foreign born. That was another finding that really shocked people. And so that's still people, maybe because it's so shocking or maybe, but I don't know why, but still there's this image of sex trafficking victims as coming from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, the majority of so the ethnicity of survivors, 28% um, of survivors are black, 25% are white, 25% are mixed or biracial, and 14% Latino. Native Americans uh, victims are overrepresented in the victim pool. So they make up, th these numbers sound tiny, but, but so forget I forget the percentages, but 1% of the population of San Diego is Native American. 2% of the victim pool is Native American. That yeah. means they're really overrepresented. And the traffickers we spoke to said that, yeah, we go after Native American women on purpose because we know they are the most vulnerable women in society. So they're very easy to get. On the trafficker side of things, you're seeing that those, according to your research, are mostly, are predominantly white. Statistically, yeah. Black folks are overrepresented in prison by a lot. If you look at that data, you see that it's, out, it's crazy that we interviewed the same number of white traffickers because white folks are underrepresented in prison, as in there aren't a lot of them there. Black folks are overrepresented in prison. Um, so that's why I say, statistically speaking, um, yeah, white traffickers are the majority and they belong to gangs like the Hells Angels, um, 
Aryan nation and Aryan circle, which are prison gangs that are uh, you know, race, white supremacy based gangs, but also skinhead gangs out in East County and um, white peckerwood gangs. Peckerwood is a uh, kind of a derogatory term for poor white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of white gang activity, but not a lot of focus on that by law enforcement, unfortunately. Yeah, and did you, in your research, look at why that is? Like why the underrepresentation? I looked afterwards um, and I found that in, in criminology, which is the science that law enforcement is most familiar with, uh, people who are criminologists have a lot of interaction with, with law enforcement officers. They, criminologists, don't consider prison gangs and skinhead gangs to be the same type of gang as street gangs. Mm-hmm. So they've made this argument in their literature that, oh, you know, uh, you know, Logan Heights gang is not the same kind of gang as skinheads out in East County, so we can't compare them and we can't look at them together. Because of that argument, white gangs have been completely ignored in the literature. They've just kind of been carved out and set aside. I think it reflects institutionalized racism, frankly, in the academy. This is definitely a new piece of the puzzle. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was your research with traffickers and your interviews with them. What impact would decriminalization of sex work have on the trafficking space? Because you have this kind of firsthand knowledge of of talking to folks that are trafficking. So that's a really political question for some people because I think the reason is because when you, t- when you talk about decriminalization, the term sex work mm-hmm. is part of the vocabulary and there are people like our DA, yet there's no such thing as sex work. So just, you know, acknowledging that up front, um, I think that decriminalizing the, uh, the victim, like decriminalizing the act and prosecuting the buyers is absolutely approached that would have a positive impact and the reason I say that is because this is a market and it operates like a market if there's no demand for the product then the market ceases to exist there is a huge demand for sex for commercial sex and so the only way the only the only proven methods of decreasing market demand is to uh, go after the people who are demanding it, to stigmatize it, to arrest them, to impose greater penalties on people who buy. Um, I mean, right now, right now, I mean, I'll just put it in very stark terms. The person who buys a 14-year-old girl and rapes her, right? The guy that shows up in, in court and says, she didn't look 14 to me, and, you know, it, it it was consensual. No, she was 14 and you raped her. That guy gets a misdemeanor. The trafficker who provides the commodity um, can get up to 50 years in prison. So the law enforcement strategy of going after the intermediary uh, instead of the buyer seems very misplaced to me. I understand it from a criminal justice perspective, but from a what works perspective, no. It doesn't, it doesn't work actually at all. 
Well, that was another part of the equation too, is like with people who are buying and engaging in this economy, like, is there a mental health thing going on that would make somebody like crave an underaged girl or something? And, and is that part of it as well? Like when they get this misdemeanor, this small fine, but I know there are like classes, but is that effective kind of com- looking at it from that angle and getting these people quote unquote, like help so that they aren't craving these things? Kelly, that's a really, really good question. And it's one that haunted me like for, I was, I had to understand uh, why the demand was so big. Mm. So here's what I came to understand. Number one, uh, sex addiction is a real thing. And a majority of, at least the, 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 the men who go to John's school, the, the ones that were able to talk to, they will almost always say they started with porn before they sort of graduated to wanting to buy an actual person. So porn, if you look into the research, watching porn changes the reward centers of the brain. It actually restructures um, the brain. It's a bit like an addiction to drugs. So you need more and more stimulation in that certain area of the brain, the pleasure center, to get what it is that you're looking for. Mm. Many men stumble into this you know, accidentally by, you know, the old cliche of finding your, your dad's stack of playboys under the bed, that is real. Like you start by looking at nudie pictures. You, I mean, on the internet now you can find crazy stuff. And so, yes, there's a link between exposure to pornography and the desire to then purchase another person. Yes, there are about 2% of people who are sadomasochists and they are purchasing people to uh you know to torture them or to carry out you know strange fantasies with them there are some people who for a variety of reasons have a repressed sexual life um whether it is because they come from a very religious um background that sort of prohibits certain kinds of sexual acts and and they they want to explore those acts so they they look outside the marriage to do it so there are all different types out there but i think perhaps the most important um influence is that in this country there is a tacit acceptance of prostitution there's this idea that men will be men, boys will be boys. Uh, It's the oldest profession in the world. Like all these uh, cliches that you hear are actually justifications for the idea that this is okay. And I think if we can do it, if we can get rid of that, um, if we like imagine if instead of that, there's a tacit understanding that this is uh, repulsive, that this involves the buying and selling of another human being. so yeah, so those four, those four reasons I think are really important or four factors. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because reading into the decriminalization, uh, those policies and proposals and things like I, I spoke with the commander of the human trafficking task force and she and I kind of laid it out really well. Like if you decriminalize the work, she's saying decriminalizing victims, essentially like people who are in prostitution or like being exploited by a a trafficker or maybe they think that they're doing it on their own 
they want to, they like it, but really there's something else going on. I mean, basically uh, she was saying that when that gets decriminalized, it's going to make it harder for law enforcement and it could potentially open up more opportunities for traffickers to swoop in. Even if trafficking is still illegal and bad, if the thing that they are selling becomes decriminalized, then it becomes more opportunistic for them to jump in. And I'm just wondering, is that something you've seen echoed or like based on your research could be a reality? Here's where me, the, the conflict analyst comes in. Um, when, when child prostitution was decriminalized back in 2016, you would think, well, first, child prostitution, there's no such thing. Like that's yeah. a statutory rate, but it was the penal code on the books, child prostitution. In 2016, San Diego finally said, okay, that's not a thing. We're going to decriminalize it. Law enforcement was against that too. And I understand why. From their perspective, they have the arrest mechanism. Is there one tool that they have to separate the child from the trafficker? And they know how much of this is a mind game and how the, the, young, the younger you are, the more trauma bonded you are to your trafficker. Traffickers have, have groomed these young girls to, to hate, to be wary, to fear law enforcement, to be very loyal to, to them. Um, and so law enforcement was like, you're, we, we get where you're coming from, but you're taking away our ability to separate that person from the trafficker and to try to get you know, resources to that person. Um, that's still, that's a very valid point. I think that there is a third way a third track. Um, and actually, I, I don't just think this, the, the Child Advocacy Institute at University of San Diego has been very vocal in advocating that there should be a system set up that is neither the child welfare system, which is sort of notoriously bad at dealing with young victims, nor the, the juvenile justice system, which, uh, you know, victim advocates say, you shouldn't be arresting these people that traumatizes them. Okay, fine. There should be a third system that is neither one of those that is specifically set up to, um, to accomplish the same thing. You can still take this victim. Uh, it's not an arrest, but it is a imposed, it's a mandatory confinement, if you will, to a facility that um, is not a jail but it is, it's not Polaris house either. It's, it's, I don't know. We, we had a really cool talk about this once in, in a, a big meeting where the former head of the human, human trafficking task force was explaining law enforcement's perspective on this. And when victim service providers understood it, they were like, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. You know? And so there is a third way that's possible. We just haven't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah. And it sounds like they're trying to make strides towards that in the sense that if somebody is pulled in uh, man or woman for prostitution, they are just cited. They're not arrested is what the commander was telling me. But she was like, that's usually when they use the opportunity to say, hey, if you're being trafficked, if there's something else going on here, you can come to us. So it was just so intricate. Like I didn't even think about that as a pathway to stopping trafficking or helping victims out basically by having agents go undercover, get into these situations and essentially like have to 
arrest or cite the individual who is, you know, for prostitution. But at the same time, they're using that as an opportunity to get in the room with them and to say, hey, if you need anything, we're here for you. And I thought that was really interesting. But the hybrid approach that you're discussing also sounds fascinating where take them somewhere else, um, get them help, but they don't get arrested. Like it's just, but it sounds like there's no concrete model for that yet. Is there? There isn't because the conversation has kind of been interrupted and we, we never got back to it. There hasn't, in other words, no one has convened a meeting around a table with Jeannie Franco, with the, the major service providers in San Diego County to say, let's make this a reality. We had a conversation a couple of years ago where everyone started brainstorming ideas like, okay, there's a big facility out towards you know, where George Bailey prison is. It's not a prison, it's a big warehouse. You know, could we outfit that uh, with like, you know, it's really beautiful inside, it's comfortable. There are social social workers there, there are counselors there. Um, so we started talking about it, but then we did not come back to that conversation. And talking with you is making me wonder, huh, I wonder if maybe that's something I should think about uh, organizing because yeah, because the the problem is that like police, law enforcement's heart is in the right place. But again, the younger the person is, the more likely it is they've been programmed to view law enforcement as the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Don't trust them. The trafficker has told them, don't trust them. They're going to say they want to help you, but they really don't. What they really want to do is get me and they'll say anything to you. So th that's what, th that's what they believe. So yeah. yeah, getting them out of that situation. Because if the cop does say, or the agent says like, hey, we're here to help you, but there's this distrust that's already been yeah. embedded in this person, yeah. then what do yeah. you do? You can't arrest them. You, yeah, you take them yeah. to this third party facility or like that's not a jail, but it's just a place to get some help. Exactly. And you have, what if you have survivors there? You know, people who were in the life and are now out of the life. We have a lot of survivor leaders in the San Diego community. So instead of police, you have survivors and you have social workers and counselors who are, who are different. You know, they, they haven't been programmed to fear those people. And the, the survivors speak the language of the streets and of the life and can get through to them. Yeah. Did the people you talked to uh, report any distrust of law enforcement as a result of like certain police officers, like engaging in the act or something or like yeah. in people? So not victims, but from traffickers, we heard several times that law enforcement is complicit in the whole system. I was just reading this interview the other day. Uh, this one trafficker said, look, there are known parts of this city where this stuff happens. And he was actually talking about up in Los Angeles as well. And he was like, if you just go and camp out at this, you know, this particular corner and just watch, the police cars will come up. Uh, to these these girls who are obviously prostitutes and they will talk to them. They know who they are. They know what they're doing. And then they will cruise on by. And the reason that they cruise on by is that they were being paid off by the trafficker who runs that particular territory. So this is not an indictment of the whole police institution, but there are definitely, you know, cases where law enforcement benefits from it. There are cases where law enforcement participates uh, in it. And so for if, if a victim has had a police officer as a client, let's say, um, in what kind of impression is that going to leave on her? 
that, that's a whole different argument for why you can't trust the cops. Yeah, I was just, I was curious about that. And I mean, in your interviews, did you hear from uh, women or just those who are being trafficked about those instances where they do have cops as clients? Or was that less common in this area? The thing is, we didn't actually interview victims. We interviewed, we, uh, the women that we interviewed were in Las Colinas prison and they were former prostitutes um, or current, currently working in, in the industry with or without a pimp. Um, but we were asking them more about how the industry worked and less okay. about their experiences. So okay. that's a really good question, but we didn't really get into it much. Yeah, no, that's okay. That was just like, again, that's a thread that I hear in, as I talk to survivors and stuff is that, oh, well, when you've had a cop as a client or you, you know, yeah. cops are getting paid off, like it's hard for you to want to trust them and to come forward. Um, but then in talking with the DA, she said she hasn't, heard of anything in San Diego specifically about that. And, it, and if, when there are instances, like they, people are held accountable, there are legal, there's legal action taken. Well, look, I mean, the DA has a responsibility to her officers to say that, but I can yeah. corroborate, I can corroborate what you've heard from former, from survivors um, by saying, yes, traffickers also have said this is this is happening um and i will add there's a lot of pressure on district attorneys on the inside not to hold officers accountable publicly for that kind of thing mm-hmm. kind of a double-edged sword now san diego summer stefan is one of the most progressive da's in the entire country when it comes to fighting this battle but there is a, there's an incentive baked into it. And I'm not saying she's ever done this, but I'm just saying there's an incentive to um, downplay or minimize when police officers are involved because it's her outfit that is in charge of the criminal justice response. I just wanted to ask you one more thing about uh, force used in um, trafficking. So your report had found that only 12% of the facilitators were using violence to coerce people into trafficking. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on like what that says about the common belief that most trafficking is the result of somebody you know, being kidnapped off the street, taken style. Like, what does that reveal about this? That that is not the reality. And <laughs> it's not. Uh I'll add to that that 30% of victims said force had been used. So that's, you know, double, that's more than double what traffickers said, but it's still 70% of people saying it's not physical violence. It's because my passport was taken away or I was locked into a room. Um, So number one, taken is not how it works. Number two, um, traffickers were very helpful for me to understand why this is the case. I, after the study, I went back and did a study of coerciveness because I, yeah, this, this was very interesting to me why there should be less violence than we thought. With regard to sexual coercion, so sexual and violent coercion are the least, uh, are the least used methods of coercion. If you think about the different types of coercion, there's physical, 
sexual, as in rape, um, psychological, which we've talked a lot about, and then economic and chemical, economic coercion being, you know, someone takes the majority of your profits and chemical is, you know, drug dependency and drug addiction is super wrapped up in this. So when we talked to traffickers, first of all, um, gangs, that treated sex trafficking as a business, meaning the whole gang is organizing trafficking. It's not just individual gang members having like pimping on the side, for example. They tended to have a policy against it. So I'm gonna read you a quote by one of the traffickers. He said, don't have sex with your girls. As much as you want to, you just don't do it because business and pleasure don't mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, so what I was saying before, the people in, people who identify as quote unquote pimps tended to view sexual coercion, so yeah, rape, <laughs> as a failure to play the pimping game successfully. Um, so basically they thought that real pimps, if you're a real pimp, you shouldn't have to resort to sex or violence in order to dominate and exploit people. They call it a mind game. They're super aware that it's uh, psychological. And um, I will read you a couple of other quotes um, from that. Pimps don't have sex with their prostitutes. When you call yourself a pimp, it's certain rules and regulations and guidelines that you have to live by. That was one guy. Another guy said, sorry, this is explicit, but Mm -hmm. he said, you know, the number one rule is never fuck your hoe. Of course, you have to give them some kind of sensation to make them think they're loved. But see, if you have to stick your dick in a hoe, you're really not a pimp because the pimping game is used for mentality. You have to learn to break a girl down mentally. It's a mental game. Wow, they're calculated. Super calculated. So yeah, two thirds of our interviewees reported using those tactics of psychological coercion and... um, yeah, so so that, and you know, not 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 everyone identified as a pimp, right? Some pimps identify, you know, they said that their role was more similar to, you know, I'm the driver or I'm the bodyguard. I'm, you know, I'm there to make sure nothing happens to the girl, you know, while she's doing her thing. Um, so people play different roles. They are all still traffickers under the penal code, human trafficking. Are they still like emotionally involved with any of the the girls? And why do I say that? Like, are they like boyfriends in a way or no? Yeah. So they're like, there is this typology of different types of traffickers, right? And there are a couple of traffickers that we met did describe their involvement as, in fact, one of the first people we talked to said, yeah, my girlfriend does this. And I didn't know that before I got together with her. She told me after we got together. And, and actually, and so I, I believe this guy, this guy, I, I actually didn't code as a trafficker because what he was describing was uh, a woman who had, did not have a pimp, had chosen to do this professionally. Um, and he wasn't taking all her money, you know, like they, yeah. Yeah. So, so he had a job as well. So I, I didn't code that guy as a trafficker. Um, another person, a Hells Angels guy said, yeah, I, I was a pimp. These two girls approached me and asked me if I would be their security basically. And I was like, sure. And he said, 
we basically were all just three friends living in an apartment and we yeah we used to fuck and we used to do drugs and you know I would help them out so there's that kind of relationship out there too okay yeah but that was not in the majority of cases um staying like the because okay so the reason I asked that is because I've I've heard that a lot of um, victims of sex trafficking get pulled in by these boyfriend types who are like, they're, you know, they're, oh, I love you. So let's start doing this for me, making me, and there is a, like a quote unquote romantic relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. That's a boyfriend, a Romeo pimp. That's how a lot of girls are pulled into it is, is through that, the Romeo, the Romeo pimping. Okay. But it's the violent methods that are just in general, less common, but Romeo pimping isn't necessarily like rare. No, it's definitely not rare. Um, it's probably rare in the sample of facilitators that we talked to. And those are more of a gang member space, right? Exactly. We were looking specifically at traffickers who were in gangs. The, Ro- the Romeo method is used to get girls into the gang. Mm. It's common for a Romeo pimp to seduce and to play that role and to have sex with the girl. But once he's got her, then he withholds, right? Then he, you know, then, mm-hmm. and, and the withholding of sex is actually part of the mind game. Doesn't yeah. mean he never had sex with her at all, um, but that stops the minute that she becomes his property, the minute he thinks he's got her, oh. he'll actually withhold sex as a way of controlling her. So no, I don't want you to think that the Romeo pimping is not a a big part of this it is I just it didn't come up as much in our sample because I don't know I mean I think maybe it's younger guys I think I have it this is not this is my hunch I think that the younger you are the more likely you are to use that as your primary method of getting um, a girl involved Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's yeah, totally. And with gangs, do you find that the majority of trafficking, like, do you think it is happening gang related or it sounds like you talked to traffickers who weren't in gangs either? Thank you for asking that. I also did an analysis after our study to to answer that question. Like how much of this is, uh, so, I mean, we found that there were 110 gangs involved and that 85% of the people we talked to belong to gangs, but I didn't want the public to walk away thinking, oh my God, this is like a super highly organized thing. So I, I ran a statistical analysis and I found that um, two thirds of the trafficking in San Diego County is, is like entrepreneurial, disorganized. It's like one guy doing this on this side, you know, his, his gang is primarily involved in drug trafficking uh, and he does not he does not have to give any money from his pimping activities to the gang. Um, but a third of it is highly organized. And it's that third that I think law enforcement should really be focused on. It's in the same way as there are prevention and intervention programs for gang members, there can be those kinds of programs for traffickers as well. And those that's how I think we should target the, the, the guys doing it on the side. But the more organized operations, that's a third of the activity in San Diego County. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this and all of your time. This has been so incredible. Again, thank you for covering it because we we need to keep raising awareness about this ugly issue. Thanks so much for listening to this bonus interview on the North County Beat. 
Again, you heard from Dr. Amy Carpenter, a University of San Diego associate professor with the Kroc School of Peace Studies and the co-author of the massive 2016 study on sex trafficking in San Diego. And we wanted to remind you that the North County Beat is sponsored by Casa di Bandini at the Forum in Carlsbad. They are currently open for takeout, so you can get all of the fresh, authentic flavors that you love right at home, plus delicious margaritas to go. The Coast News and Casa di Bandini are teaming up to give away those $50 gift cards for some great food and drink. Just follow the Coast News group on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and then like, share, and tag a friend or dozens of friends as soon as you see the Casa di Bandini giveaway post pop up in your feed. Huge thanks to our team at the Coast News. Podcast manager is Ryan Wolt. Coast News editor-in-chief is Jordan Ingram. Our associate publisher is Chris Kidd, and our publisher is Jim Kidd. Thank you so much for listening to the North County Beat. I'm your host, Kelly Kyle. Hope you have a great week, and we will talk to you next time.